WFIU, Bloomington, Indiana, where you don't need to be an expert if you learn something new every day. Distraction. Sometimes we hate it. Sometimes we need it. For Ernie and Jerry, where they were headed, distraction might do them some good. This week on the Ernie Pyle Experiment, when friends in need come calling, is it okay to put our own problems aside, or is it just an excuse to not look at the truth? Hello, this is Ernie Pyle, the Hoosier Vagabond, and this is that girl who rides with me. And I love it. Welcome to the Ernie Pyle Experiment, Episode 9, A Desolate Corporation. It's four in the morning. We're home in Washington. And the phone rang an hour ago with some very bad news. A pilot is missing. Excuse me. Come, come in. Ernie's on the phone with someone on the hill. Don't know much yet. Oh, hello, Phoebe. Is Vern with you? He's down in Tennessee. In town alone? I took a job with an advisory committee on aeronautics with Amelia. You didn't hear that? Well, I knew Amelia was doing something like that, that the president himself called her in. And she didn't tell you about me, huh? I don't remember. (laughs) That's just like her keeping the glory for herself. She thinks she can beat me on the ground, but she can't beat Phoebe Omley in the air. I'm sure she said something about it. Can we come in? Oh, yes. Shh, 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 be quiet. If someone was never going to get it, my guess it would have to be Howard Stark. I just don't believe it. What do we know? Hello, Mrs. Pyle. Hello, Mrs. Putnam. Oh, don't you dare. <laughs> Started it. <laughs> That's risky work calling Amelia Earhart names. Hello, George. <laughs> Hello. So, come now. What do we know? Just that at some point yesterday, Howard took off from Wyoming, headed for Salt Lake City. He never made it. That's it? Mm, that's all I know yet. No evidence of a crash, fire, no, anything? I'm sorry, I haven't heard. Hello, Ernie. Hi, everybody. Listen, my influence on the aviation world in this town has shifted. It's a longer climb to the top to get to the bottom of things anymore. Well, it's worth sitting mm-hmm. at home by yourself waiting for word. At least we can feel mm-hmm. like it used to yeah. be when your phone was the first to get the news. Have you called the White House? You can't call the White House. Why not? What does Roosevelt care about Howard Stark? Call the White House. Tell them to get Cordell Hull's office to get some answers. Mm-hmm. Then call Claude Swanson. What do you think will happen when the president finds out I've been calling his entire cabinet? <sighs> What is the weather like in the mountains there? Uh, it's not good for flying. Oh, it's hard mm. enough getting through the Rockies on that angle in a clear sky. When he started out, the sky was clear in Cheyenne. The weather was good in Utah as well. About four mm. hours later, Cheyenne was having snow flurries to come over the mountain like a big wall. He probably mm. sat down in a clearing up there somewhere. That's not a good idea. As opposed to the alternative? He'll freeze his ass Can off up there. Can you imagine mm. flying in a clear blue sky, clearing a mountain peak, and seeing that big wall mm. of dark mm. clouds in front of you? I've no. seen that. Uh, me too. Mm. Well, I saw it first. Oh, yes, Phoebe, you were first. We all know <laughs> you were the first woman across the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, thank you. It's nice to hear. Maybe you'll get a first one day, too. Oh. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, Irvy Ballou. Irvy Ballou. Have I met him? <laughs> Where's Irvy out of now? Uh, you'll never get him out of Florida. Mm. How's that true? When he's flying for Eastern between Atlanta and Chicago. Oh, that's right. I always mm. think of him as an independent. <laughs> what a swell fella. He makes me laugh. <laughs> Irvy and I were having a drink once, and up comes... Vern treat. Now, Irvy is completely bald as an eagle on top, and Vern puts his hand on Irvy's head and says, Irvy, this feels like my wife's fanny. And Irvy puts his hand up there and says, well, I'll be damned. It sure does. (laughs) 
Hello, Doris. Doris, how are you? Does anybody know anything definitive? Not yet. Ernie's on the phone with... I don't know who he's talking to now. Irvie? No, he hung up with him and he called someone else. Tubby at Hoover. What? <laughs> Probably Tubby down at Hoover Airfield. He's a mechanic. He sleeps there. Tubby has a dozen phones lined up on a bench. They're all smeared with grease. Each line dedicated to another airport across the eastern seaboard. So we can track what's happening by who knows what and where. All the damn phones are black so you can't see the grease. And one time I picked one of them up to make Does a call Does anybody know Howard Stark's wife? Where is he out of? A, a lot of places, dear. Uh, last I knew, it was Chicago. I thought Newark. That's a good guess. But where does his wife make home? Beats me. Me too. A lot of folk might not think it, but this is the right time to call her and make sure she knows she's not alone. Hmm. Folks get afraid talking to the dead's next of kin. Uh, nobody said Howard was dead. Uh, yeah, we don't know anything like that. Jerry, can you tell Ernie to find Howard's wife's phone address for me? Yes, of course. We haven't met, um... Oh, you haven't. I apologize. Please allow me. Phoebe Omlee, this is Doris Messick. Doris, Phoebe, nice to meet you. Messick. Charlie Messick. That's right. Oh, I'm sorry, dear. That's okay. March of 34? Yes. Oh, boy. Roosevelt should have left well enough alone, I tell you. How was he supposed to know all that would happen? Well, it happened. I could have told you it would. Plenty of us said it would. Please, everyone knows better after the fact. You don't take a perfectly functioning airmail system with pilots that know the routes, like the back of their hands, and just let any Tom, Dick, and Hero replace them. If you do, you get 1934. That's what happened. Bernie's asking around for Mrs. Stark's phone address, Doris. Thank you. What happened in 1934? Army Air Corps took over the airmail and 40 pilots were killed in a month. Slaughtered. Mm-hmm. I'll be outside. Come find me when Ernie gets the number. Oh, nice work. Sorry. What happened? Charlie Messick was one of the 40. Later that night... All I'm saying is that the independent pilots were doing fine, and those no, routes were just given to big no, companies. And if a guy it's wanted to keep baloney, flying, right? he had to join one of them, which baloney. has its benefits. You get a nice plane out of it, taken care of by someone else. You just show up. Hey, it's taken care of by someone yeah. else too, and they give you That's half for the, the effort or whatever well, they want. Sure. Ridiculous. It costs money to run a company. Which was run fine by an individual yeah. pilot before. Exactly. Who was stealing money from the taxpayer by mm -hmm. weighing down the mailbag. I never knew anybody uh, that did no. that. That's hogwash. If some <laughs> damn stuffed shirt politician wants something, no. he makes up stories. Yeah, we all heard it happen. Fellows weighing yeah. down bags, but I never knew anybody either. All right, you never heard of honest pilots doing it, but they still agreed to take as much junk mail as they could. Oh, no, man's honesty that's has a not threshold, right. if you ask me. It's a system that eats away at the man's threshold, and it'll change a guy if he thinks that yeah. Sin won't come and sit on his house. But it was working. A lot of pilots that were working for themselves and doing well for their effort Maybe, are now making a lot less. We're all well, making a lot less. Yes, but that's not the same thing. Hoover allowed this. Companies what? carry the mail now when individual pilots, citizen businessmen, mm. used to do the job just as well. It's Washington's fault. It's dirty pool mm. when an individual has Everything. no yes. seat at the table. Yes, sure. it tells you someone is getting paid off. Okay, so in comes Roosevelt to clean up all this corruption. <laughs> And while patting himself on the back about it, he kills 40 pilots. Mm. That's not entirely... There's a bit more to it than that. I don't see it that way. Why not? Well, it's a mistake on a mistake on a mistake. On a mistake. That's what giving societal <laughs> rules to industry does. Right, so stay out of it and everything would be fine. 
fine. You yes. let it be what it wants to be. Yes, we agree on but something. But if the legislation of 1925 was created for industry, yes. your theory doesn't make sense. Well, <laughs> it was meant to put things in the hands of the people and not just the post Well, office. it turns out the people were the board of the directors uh-huh. of all the airways, it's and the hands that took things from were the individual contractor <laughs> oh. pilots, right? <laughs> right, right, yes. Yeah, you can put it any way you want. Hoover still comes out of crook. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm getting ganged yes. up on here. Oh. Hoover has nothing to do with I start talking about Hoover and I put my hand on my gun. <laughs> I'm staying out of this horse pick conversation. If you don't want Hoover drink. learned corruption wow. from Harding and Coolidge, you're crazy. He was setting society up to be run what? as a business, handing out favors oh, at a profit. I'm serious. I bet my eyes said he was on drinks. hand for teapot dome. <laughs> Let's get back to the point. The idea is that uh, private operation society is corrupt. And the federal operation society is even more corrupt, uh, which we are except seeing. Except only one of them is on the side of the ordinary man. Ordinary men run businesses. And ordinary, ordinary men, men run for Congress, get compromised by power and money, and become ordinary politicians making decisions against their own conscience. Interesting how a man can make moral decisions for another he wouldn't make for himself. That's how religions are made. Uncle Sam born in heaven. It's also interesting that such zealotry can lead to the deaths of innocent pilots. Roosevelt wants to undo each and every movement made by the past three Republican presidents. In his lunatic fever to give the federal government the control to make the model of rules, he has to upend this perfectly working order. Which he did illegally, I might add. And without democratic control of the branches, no committee would ever allow it. If the Hoover administration is handing out contracts to the highest bidder, then... How is that wrong? Enough mixing drinks over here in case anybody wants to... How is it a free market when the government chooses one airway over another? Huh, George? Regulation should be about making institutions modern. Republicans are the ones against regulation, George. You don't make any sense. Uh, And modernity is a concept they use to pull the wool over the voters' eyes. Open markets make open commerce. That's the truth no matter who is in office. who gets to make those markets is also true no matter who is in office. Well, nobody should be making those markets. You just said you more regulation. Amelia, for God's sake. The flying industry came out of nowhere. Pilots made it, the government took it from them. And when the government handed it back, it Um, was a disaster. How is the army running the airmail handing it back? What, uh... Yeah, that's true, but... Two airways competing in an open market, and one gets a contract sending the other into bankruptcy. The Republicans touting less government and more business is a laugh. They get their seat through democracy and help themselves to all the federal powers it comes with. Then shop at the Democrats' feet when the Democrats... Shut up! What's the point of talking if nobody is willing to change their mind? It was the first light of morning when Doris Messick was given the telephone address of the wife of Howard Stark, the missing pilot. And where are you now, dear? You're at home? Is anybody there with you? Just the kids? Mm -hmm. Have you called your folks? Mm-hmm. Well, just as soon as we are off the phone here, why don't you call your mother? Is she nearby? Oh, dear. That far? And you were in Secaucus? Junie Baker is in Bayonne. I will call on her. Mm-hmm. Now, listen, it's no bother. None at all. Junie Baker, I've known for 10 years. Her husband, Tom, and my Charlie served in the Army Air Corps together. All right. 
Yes, of course. Just don't turn her away if she shows up on your doorstep. I know. Listen, take the help, dear. There's a time to take the hand extended to you. You will find a way to be grateful later. Howard is well-loved. Just know that everybody here is a friend. <gasps> she hung up. Will anybody drive me to New Jersey? I think I can get you there. I can get you there faster and Tubby Stinson down at Hoover. I don't fly. Yes, George, you drive her. They are a strange corporation of loneliness and close kinship. The women of aviation who sit at home and hear that their husbands are dead. Death comes to other women's husbands too, but no people in this world are so closely linked together as the people of aviation. And it is the long and very real shadow of death that links them. When a woman's husband dies violently, the wives of the living shudder a little for themselves, though not much. And the wives of the already dead come quickly with their sympathy and their memories. I have tried to analyze the attitude toward death among aviators. I've even tried to analyze my own, for it became in time the same as theirs. Vaguely, I feel it is something like this. The pilot knows something might happen, but oh well, he's escaped so far, probably he will this time too. The wives have a greater faith and conviction of their husband's superiority. I have never known an aviation wife who didn't consider her husband the greatest pilot in the world. It's too bad when other pilots are killed, she thinks, but that won't happen to my man. He can handle any emergency. Those who have picked up the receiver and heard the awful news no better than that. Among them have been the women whose husbands actually were the greatest pilots in the world. One night my phone rang and a hurried voice said, what do you know about Howard? I started to make a funny answer to the effect that I knew a lot about him, but something in the voice stopped me. I said, what do you mean? The paper says he's been missing for 17 hours out west. I can't get any information. Can you help me? There wasn't any information. In the next few weeks, hundreds of men on snowshoes and skis, on horses and airplanes, hunted the western mountains over, but there was no trace. The missing man was Howard Stark. He's my friend. Known to many countries as the greatest blind flyer of his day. Missing. And that is aviation at its worst. Sudden news of death is like a knockout blow. It hurts and bewilders and then it gradually diminishes. But missing. That is a torture screw. 
with each hour that passes giving the screw another turn. You can't resign yourself to grief. You must hang alone by the tips of your hope, dangling, imagining, lying to yourself, waiting. The night after Howard's dark disappeared, another woman called me. Is there any news, she asked. I couldn't sleep last night. All night I was thinking of Mrs. Stark and living over my trouble again. Her trouble had been on the night mail three years earlier. Her husband had crashed and died half an hour after kissing her goodbye at the airport. I've been on hand many times when word of a crash came in. There's nothing romantic about aviation then. To hear pilots cussing with tears, to see women wild with grief or dazed and dry-eyed and staring. One girl I knew was hysterical and pounded her head against the wall. Her grief never really left her. She was gone in less than a year. The doctors would say something else, but I know she died because she didn't want to live. Another night, I sat in the operations office with a woman whose husband, he'd just been burned to death. Instead of going home, she sat because at that point, sitting or going home or anything else was equally unimportant to her. She did not cry. To this day, I am proud of myself for having the courage and common sense to ask her if she didn't want to drink a whiskey. She wasn't a woman who drank. But at that moment, a drink of whiskey was exactly what she did want. And we got it for her. Almost always, the women who are left go back to where their lives entered aviation. They take their children and their loneliness back to the hometown, and you don't hear from them again until another woman of the clan knocks for admission to their desolate corporation. And they both are in and pray for her. Next time on the Ernie Pyle Experiment. I had a horrifying adventure with a pair of pants. All right, hold still. Oh, boy, I don't think I ever had to urinate more than I had to today. Oh. I tell you, this damn zipper, maybe it's all in my head, but the more I thought about it, the more I had to pee. It was a nice suit and had two pairs of pants, one with buttons up the front, the other with a zipper. How the hell would they sell you a pair of pants oh, like this? Oh, you're telling me. What is so wrong with buttons? I had never had a zipper on a pair of pants, and I thought that was hot stuff. Grab a hold of my pants at the cuffs. Now, Bill, you do the other thing. What the? Oh. Hey! You can't spit on a fella's pants like that! Told you. Back next week with more stories from the Ernie Pyle Experiment, I'm Dan V. Prescott, reminding you that the good road never ends if you only stay on it. The Ernie Pyle Experiment was created by Michael Brainerd with a little help from the great Ernie Pyle. Episode 9, A Desolate Corporation. Jerry Pyle was played by Greta Lynn. Ernie Pyle, Michael Brainerd. Phoebe Omley, Emily McGee. Amelia Earhart, Elise Chase, George Putnam, Thomas Tiggleman, Doris Messick, Isabel Gardo, Dan V. Prescott, Tim Grimm, 
Carry on and on, Peter Spellos. Executive producer at WFIU, John Bailey. Sound director, script editor, and co-executive producer, Russell McGee. Writer, director, and co-executive producer, Michael Brainer. Sound design, Chancellor Edmonston. Composer, Ryan Chase. Music assistant, Francis Crichone. Foley artists, Brian Barnes and Nicholas Crone. Production assistants, Brian Barnes, Chancellor Edmiston, Jason Fruits, and Nicholas Crone. A very special thanks to the Ernie Pyle Legacy Foundation, promoting the life and work of the great Ernie Pyle. Another special thank you to the Media School at Indiana University. The Ernie Pyle Experiment was produced at WFIU on the campus of Indiana University. Find past episodes wherever you access your media at WFIU.org. WFIU, Bloomington, Indiana. I am now, was before, and will forever be Carrie O'Nanon.